Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, my friends! I want to let you all know that my very first book, "The Path of an Eagle: How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down," is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things. And if you want to grow abundantly, my name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. On February 8, 2013, my guest, Dr. Russell Kennedy, was highly anxious and burned out at 52 years old. Being a physician, that night he left his clinic in his own chronic state of anxiety. He wondered if life was actually worth living, but he had to be on stage as a stand-up comedian an hour later, so killing himself would have to wait. However, he never got to the comedy club. He suffered an injury that night that would end his medical career. My guest today, Dr. Russell Kennedy, is an incredible human. Honestly, he is someone that I have a lot of respect for. He is a physician, neuroscientist, certified yoga and meditation teacher, and a professional stand-up comedian, just to add that to the mix. For over a decade, he was a doctor by day, comic by night, and that's no joke. He specializes in non-traditional treatments for anxiety disorders, and he himself is a chronic warrior in recovery, as I am. Dr. Kennedy has dealt with anxiety since he was a teenager. His father was schizophrenic and bipolar, and the chaos and pain of his father's illness created tremendous alarms in his own system. Dr. Kennedy's mother did her best to love and take care of his brother and, of course, him, but she had her own issue with chronic anxiety too. He often says that his mother was neurotic and his father was psychotic, so his psyche didn't stand much of a chance. Dr. Kennedy decided to write his book, Anxiety Rx, a new prescription for anxiety relief from the doctor who created it, in the hopes to help a lot of people recover and overcome anxiety. 
He wrote the book to make his father's eventual suicide and the suffering of his family mean something to help others like himself who experienced chronic worry to understand and fix the pain that was sucking the life out of their own lives. Dr. Kennedy has degrees and advanced training in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology, but much of it that he shares with you all, and even during his conversation, did come out of his own experiences in unscientific places, believe it or not. And I've always said that experience will be always the best teacher. I think this conversation is going to help many, many of you that might be chronic worriers. I mean, worry is something that we all do and it's unavoidable, but suffering in that is the optional part. And that's what I want to encourage many of you that might be listening to this is that if you are struggling with severe and chronic anxiety, there is a way out and Dr. Kennedy can help you find that way out. And so that's why I, I did want to have Dr. Kennedy on as well. Not that's not just the, the fact that he is a, a genuine human being that is honestly awesome to speak with, but he's got so much wisdom and advice for in this area that I think that all of us can benefit from. So if you do get something from this, and I hope that you do, please share it around to all your friends and your family. If you do want to get a copy of his book, Anxiety Rx, the link for that will be in the show notes below too. I hope that you do end up getting a copy of the book. It'd be definitely worth your time reading it. Also, my friends, my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, will be out very, very soon. The link to pre-order it will be in the show notes below, and I hope that you guys get a copy of that book too. Um, and that you enjoy reading it. <laughs> but my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we learn more about a new prescription for anxiety from the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Russell Kennedy. Thanks, Jay. Like, it is really, really great to be here. I've looked at some of your, your stuff, and I think we align quite, quite markedly, actually. So I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you. I think we do align, and for my guests, I I kind of put this guy through the ringer in terms of trying to organize and schedule everything because I'm in the middle of moving house and state. So I really do appreciate your flexibility and your grace in that respect, my friend. And you actually reached out to me, which is another incredible feat of achievement. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for being here, man. I'm really looking forward to unboxing more of your story and your work. Uh, if you've listened to my conversations, which I'm pretty sure you have, you know that I start off all my conversations with this question, what does success look like for you? Okay. So for me, I think success would be something like gaining subjective mastery over ever increasing physical and emotional challenges. So we all start with a certain level of intelligence, a certain level of like money in our families. And it's like, we all have subjective challenges. Like you say on the story box, like we all have a story, yeah. right? There's people that there's people that have a tremendous amount of money that, that are incredibly unhappy, yeah. you know? So, so it's not, I think we, I think we get in the idea that if we have money, we're successful. 
And I think that's one measure of it for sure. But I think we put too much interest on money as a form of success. So it's just, and I say subjective mastery because it's, do you feel, how do you feel about it? You know, I remember when I graduated medical school and um, I walked across the stage, they called my, they called my name and they gave me this parchment paper degree, which is sitting on my wall like that. And as soon as that parchment paper hit my fingers, like as soon as that, that sort of light sort of scratchy paper hit my fingers, my brain went, okay, what's next? I, I had spent nine years getting that degree in the instant that I got that degree. I was like, okay, what's next? What's next? All right. Yep. Let's go. Let's go. And that, you know, I think that really comes from this sense with me that I can get my validation externally, which I still fight with actually, but I'm a lot better with it now and getting more of my, my sense. And that's why I say sub success is subjective, the subjective happiness with where you are in your life because it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And I think we have this idea that, oh, when I get this, when I get that, when I get this partner, when I get this job, that's going to be okay. And it's like, no, wherever you go, there you are. Mm. I often equate life to the roller coaster ride, you know, the steep slopes, quick turns, jagged edges. And more recently, I think I'm starting to realize that that's what success is as well. It's that steep climb to the top and then once you reach the top it's that you not you don't think that it's or you you thought it was completely different when you're on that steep climb up to the very top and then all of a sudden when you do reach there it's kind of like you jump off or go down the this the steep slope as quickly as possible to not feeling as great as what you thought you actually would you, you're not staying on the top if that makes any sense at all um, it makes total sense. Like if you look like my degree in neuroscience is, is like, I look at the, the mesolimbic dopamine system. I'm not going to get too technical on you, but basically there's something called reward prediction error. So if you're, if your son comes home from school with his report card and he has solid B's and you were expecting him to get solid A's, that reward prediction error, you predicted that you were going to feel really good about this, but you don't. So your dopamine drops. Now, if you were expecting, uh, you know, if he came home with solid Bs, but you were expecting he was going to come home with Cs and barely make it, then you would get this dopamine hit because the reward prediction error would mean that you erred on the side of it getting better. So it looked a lot better than what you thought, but so much of what we have in life, because we expect so much from life and expect so much from ourselves, we're kind of setting ourselves up for that sort of dopamine failure. So if we make smaller challenges for ourselves, and this is definitely true in anxiety and, and basically anything, it's like being happy with where, where you are, what you've got and where you're going like being happy in that space. And it's not that I I found that like in my life, like I'm still chasing the brass ring a lot of ways, but I know the feeling of being content exactly where I am. I'm, I'm the same. Like yeah. I know I have all these amazing things coming my way and I know they, they're amazing because uh, I've worked really, really hard for them to actually happen, but I'm not rel relying solely on my happiness and my joy being in those things. I know joy and happiness is going to come to some extent as a result of those things coming to fruition, but it's not, if that don't come to fruition, it's not like I'm my joy and my happiness is going to be solely taken away because of that not happening. 
So I, I place my my joy and my happiness in other things that hold more meaning and more value to them, like people, like connections, connecting with as many of my friends as I possibly can, having meaningful conversations with people like you, Russell, and and uh, being able to just write things down, exercise, you know, those, they may sound like they're simple things, but they are far better in terms of feeling happy and, and fulfilled than all the other things that the world tells you, you know, chase, get it, you'll feel great as a result. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Cause I I've hit some pretty high highs in my life and I can honestly say that I like, like my, my medical degree, they didn't build, they didn't live up to the hype. Right. It was like, I was always kind of, okay, well that was good. What's next kind of thing. And uh, I think that, you know, comes a lot from my childhood, of course, which we can talk about, but it, it does come from this place where you, you're expecting more. And I, I like to say that expectations are premature resentments because as soon as we create an expectation on something, chances are that reward prediction error is going to come in and it's not going to be what you expected. Right. And but can you can you see how it didn't turn out your way and how that twist and turn? And I've heard you talk on on podcasts before about, you know, some of the things that you didn't think were good actually wound up coming out in your favor. Yeah, the unexpected things, those yeah. those uh yeah, they, they kind of jolt you a little bit. You don't expect them to be good, but then when they are, it's sort of like, oh, that was surprising. This is great. <laughs> and that's exactly what I mean about reward prediction error. Like if you keep your if you keep your prediction level low, you're much more likely to attain that and get the dopamine as opposed to expecting something huge, having it fall below that, which is still great. Yeah. But because it, your expectation was set so high, you wind up putting a lot of negative chemicals into your brain and your body. Does that mean we should remove all kinds of expectations and have like literally none? Well, the Buddhists would say that too. I remember, I remember going to a temple in, in India when I lived there and uh, I, I was a Buddhist temple and I went into uh, there and I noticed they had all sorts of dirt in the corners of their temple, but the floor was pretty clean. And I said, I noticed you guys have got a lot of dirt in the, the corner of your temples. And they said, well, even our vacuums don't have attachments. So that... <laughs> I was meant as a joke, but, but it's just like, that's it. I mean, attachment, you know, that, and I've heard you mention this before too, like pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional and suffering is usually what we do to ourselves. And a lot of that is anxiety. A lot of anxiety is anticipatory. And if you grow up in a family where there was trauma, you learn to anticipate trauma. And it, it, and it changes your nervous system. It changes your wiring. So if you're always anticipating trauma, you never actually get into that kind of parasympathetic rest and digest. You know, it's always like you got a bit of, you got a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake at the same time. And, you know, we feel our life through our body. And when you have your foot on the, the gas and the brake at the same time, if you're sympathetic and parasympathetic or active at the same time, you never really feel anything. Because you don't have a chance to really feel the isness of something because you're always tempering it with, oh my God, how long is this going to last? Mm. Were you a happy child? Yeah, I think I was. You know, it's funny when you say that because that's the question I asked my daughter. I probably asked her that question a thousand times because, you know, um, now Leander's 37 now, 36, 37. 
and she has two kids of her own. So I'm a grandfather, but I used to say that to her all the time. I would look over at her on the car and I go, are you a happy child? And she'd say, yes. I'm a and then one day <laughs> she had lost a, a possession that was very, that was very important to her. And she's sort of crying in the side of the car. And I said to her, are you, are you a happy child? And she goes, I'm upset, but I'm still a happy child, you know? And it's just, it was just, it, it just really warmed my heart to know that, that, that she was a happy child. And I think I was too. And I think that's my nature to be sensitive and happy. And this is what I say. I think, I think we're born with an inherent level of sensitivity. You know, there's this saying that says the trauma in a family will land squarely in the heart of the most sensitive child. And I think I was the most sensitive child. And my dad was bipolar and schizophrenic. Uh, my mother was, was very um, dutiful, um, but she, she came from like Scotland and, and, you know, the British stiff upper lip kind of thing. So she wasn't as affectionate, although, you know, my brother and I knew we were loved and cared for and, but you know, the affection really wasn't there. So there was this sense that I, I have this tremendous need for connection and love and they just couldn't provide it to me. You know, my brother, you know, he's done fine, you know, but for me, I developed a significant sort of issue with anxiety because I did, I did have this level of sensitivity that was higher than most people. Now it works in your favor in a lot of ways because it makes you more loving and caring and connected but by the same token, it also makes you more afraid of love connection as well. So it's that it's that sort of dichotomy back and forth and learning how how can I kind of hack the scales into allowing myself to accept love? Because I've been divorced three times. Well, no, I did. I, I've been married three times. I've been divorced twice. Uh, don't let my wife hear that last part. Um, uh, so it's one of those things where I early on in my life. I wanted love so bad, but I also was afraid of it. You know, I had my, my dad who I loved a lot, who was a great guy. Like my dad was a great guy. He taught me how to, you know, fish and play baseball and, and, and ride a bike and all that kind of stuff. But when he was bipolar or psychotic or whatever, I just learned that I couldn't trust him. So I learned not to trust love. And that bled into all my relationships as I got older. Yeah. What, what do you think made you the more emotional one of the family was it yeah i've always wondered about this because i'm the i guess you could say the more emotional one too yeah i think that it was passed on from your someone from your family or you just naturally picked it up i think the, i think we're just kind of born with a certain level of sensitivity you know some people say um there's this theory about weight loss it's like well you know, that's my set point. If, if, if I can just sort of eat or do what I want, I'll be 217 pounds. And, and I go up and I go down three or four pounds from that. But generally, that's where I wind up staying. And I think we kind of have that same thing with temperament. And some of the research actually shows this too, that our temperament is somewhat stable throughout life, like the amount of sensitivity that we have. But the crazy thing about us sensitive people is often we will put ourselves into chaotic situations when we're the least prepared for it. So we're the most sensitive, but we'll put ourselves in the most chaotic situations. And I think a lot of times, and I tell this to a lot of people, is like, what was your childhood like? Like what kind of things? For me, there was a lot of chaos. I didn't know what was going to happen. So Freud called this the repetition compulsion. So 
So whatever was familiar to you in your childhood, you will unconsciously and automatically repeat in your adulthood. So because there was a lot of chaos in my childhood, I replicated a lot of chaos in my adulthood. A lot of my relationships were fractured. You know, I didn't keep a job for a very long. I mean, my mother said, you know, you had to become a doctor because you couldn't work for anybody. I mean, I think I was fired from the first four jobs I ever had, not because I was belligerent or whatever. It's just like I hated being told what to do. So I thought, well, if I become a doctor, I can just I can, you know, run my own show, which is exactly what I did. You know, so so I think that 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 coming back to your original question, I think we're born with this level of sensitivity. And I think if you're born very sensitive into a loving, caring, attached family, you'll do fine. But if you're born very caring and sensitive and there's a lot of trauma in your family, I think you're more likely to come up with anxiety, disorder, anxiety, OCD, depression, eating disorders, all that kind of stuff will manifest from that. So it's a lot worse for the one that is more sensitive when it comes down to dealing with trauma than say someone that is not as sensitive as you are, but they experience the same trauma, like in terms of managing it and experience the symptoms and the repercussions of it. You know, what I see, Jay, is I see the people that are more stoic, how that energy comes out in their body. You know, they wind up needing like knee replacements in their 50s rather than their 70s, or they wind up getting uh, you know, autoimmune diseases or something like that. So the sensitive people who come out with anxiety and kind of, in a way, process the energy emotionally kind of discharge it in some respect. Whereas the people that kind of just keep pushing it down and, and don't deal with it, it usually will come out in physical symptoms in their body. And that's why I see people with trauma, you know, showing up with, you know, things like fibromyalgia and irritable bowel syndrome and early arthritis. And that because it comes out, it's got to go somewhere like energy can't be created nor destroyed, only changed in form. So I think you either deal with it emotionally and discharge it emotionally if you can. And if you keep stuffing it down, it will show up in your body. Mm. Yeah, I've noticed that with my life with dealing with some of the traumas and, and all that sort of stuff. Like I used to be hospitalized for some undiagnosed things. So my mom and I, before we really discovered about the whole trauma thing and all that, which came sort of later in life. Now we look back at, at those times and we, we say, yeah, that probably was due to trauma due to the stress, due to anxiety, due to all kinds of things. Cause there were unexplained illnesses regarding my bowel and yeah. I'd be in like acute pain. I'd have headaches. Sometimes I, I get severe migraines and they couldn't, the doctors couldn't explain it. Like everything else in my body was working fine. Bloods were fine. Everything was fine. But my, the way my body was reacting was not fine. So it's clear to me, like when you saying that, that, it was due to some form of trauma coming back up and I hadn't deal, hadn't dealt with it. Like my body didn't know how to, how to manage it. Yeah. And as a child, you would, and as a child, you wouldn't know how to deal with it. No. And you that's know, the, the only thing. thing. Yeah. The only thing we really know how to deal with is in children is we, we know how to stuff it down. And that's kind of what I think happens is that, that you get some sort of uh, abuse, loss, abandonment, rejection, uh, as as a child and your little child mind can't tolerate it. 
So what it does is it takes that energy and it stuffs it down into the, the uh, what Freud would call the unconscious, right? Uh, and as the body is a manifestation of the unconscious mind, and, and Bessel van der Kolk talks a bit about this in The Body Keeps the Score, it shows up in your body. Now, we can use the body, and this is a lot of how I do therapy with people, is I use the body as a conduit to that unconscious mind because you can't speak consciously to the unconscious mind. It just, it doesn't seem to penetrate. But if you use the body's own, I will find people's trauma, say that, you know, their, their father died when they were five or whatever, you know, I'll get them to close their eyes and ground themselves and say, okay, let's go back into that time where your, your father had died. Now, where do you feel that in your body? Now, I'm shortening this down quite a bit, but, you know, check between your chin and your pubic bone, because usually it's in the midline and see if there's a pain or a pressure or an energy that kind of when you bring that memory to mind, that kind of lights up in your body. And a lot of people say, yeah, I kind of feel it in my solar plexus. And I'll say, well, how big is it? It's like, oh, the size of my fist. Okay. Does it have a color or a shape? It's like no color, but, you know, it, it's kind of maybe oval. You know, and is it sharp or dull? It's not sharp. Does it radiate? Does it penetrate anywhere? Yeah, it kind of pushes up into my heart, maybe goes into my back. And the more we drill down into this, it's amazing how many more memories people will get from that old trauma. And as we bring that up, because I believe that anxiety really is more of an issue with stored trauma in the body that's only reflected by the mind. The mind is like the translator of it. The, the real problem is this old alarm energy that's stored in our body that we don't know. So we keep going to doctors and therapists and taking, take, excuse me, taking medication um, when we don't know about this alarm that's stored in our body, which is the true cause of our pain. And this is what I found when I was on LSD. LSD showed me this is that my anxiety, and I don't know exactly how I was told this, but I was told that your anxiety is actually a state of alarm that is locked in your body. And for you to heal, you're going to have to bring that alarm back up into consciousness and heal it from there. And then from that point on, I really started to get a, a handle. And that's where the book Anxiety Rx comes from, is that that's how I really healed from anxiety. It wasn't trying to change my thoughts or think positively or anything like that, although that helps a bit, but it doesn't, it doesn't heal you. It's finding the alarm in your body, realizing that alarm is probably your younger self. And if we look at it from a neuroscientific point of view, the amygdala in our brains, kind of the so-called fear center of the brain, which is not a really accurate statement, but it works for this, has no sense of time. So anything that reminds you of your old trauma will send you back to that age that you experienced that trauma and your body will feel the same way. So if we can find that feeling in your system and start bringing it up to the surface and start showing that that feeling, which is really your younger self, that you're okay, that you're safe now, that you're not back in that place anymore, then we can really start healing. And that's what makes, you know, the book and, and my methods um, just different than typical psychiatry, psychology, all that kind of thing. We'll get to more of your methods and strategies yeah, sure. in, in a moment, but I want to give my audience some context with your story a little bit. You mentioned already that your father had bipolar disorder. My grandmother, my mum's mum had bipolar disorder too. 
So my mom had to deal with that uh, growing up and she was hospitalized and put in a mental asylum back in those days. And she did electroshock therapy. They had all these kind of crazy things for my grandmother. Um, She she went went through horrible stuff uh, and they didn't really understand or know too much about trauma and what people had, had experienced or gone through and how to manage it properly. So obviously they're trying out these new forms like electroshock therapy and all that stuff. But what was your own experience like with dealing with anxiety? Where did the, you've mentioned that more than likely that the trauma came, the anxiety came from the trauma. Where did that all begin for you? Well, yeah, like I said, my dad was bipolar and schizophrenic and I kind of had a sense of that since I was very young, you know, when I was about 10 or 11 or 12, I really started to see, Hey, my dad isn't quite right. You know, there's not, there's something that's just not right about this guy. And my younger brother didn't, I don't think he really noticed it as much, but it was a feeling for me and that uh, I couldn't, there was a sense that I couldn't rely on him or couldn't trust him. And it's not because he was ever violent or abusive because he never was, but there was this sense in me that, okay, I don't know if I can trust this person. Hmm. So growing up and I was bullied as well, like that, that sort of got into my brain as well. Cause I had this nervous tick, like a, a, a mild form of Tourette syndrome when I was younger, which is probably from the, the trauma of growing up with this, you know, schizophrenic father and not really knowing what's going on and being like six or seven or eight years old. So I would get teased about this tick on my face. And, and, and so I went through a lot of trauma as a kid. And, and I realized that, but even as a child, I knew that one day I was going to make this mean something. And here's the weird thing about me as a child. Like when I, even when I was being bullied by these kids, there was part of me that thought that I was helping them. Mm. Like I was, as these kids bullied me, it was like, I was taking some of their negative energy away from them because, you know, there was this sense that I can handle it that I'm, I'm strong. I can handle this. And that's one thing about anxiety is it makes you overestimate threat and underestimate your ability to deal with it. But for some reason, as a child, I kind of took on like more than I could chew really. You know, I became kind of a, um, a caregiver for my mother. She loved Monty Python. So I was always making her laugh. That's how I became a stand-up comic was I would used to make my mother laugh all the time when my dad was in the mental hospital or when he was, you know, when he was deeply depressed and we didn't know if he was going to commit suicide, you know, like I would make my mother laugh to this day. She's 88. And I still like, she'll phone me and she'll have some tale of woe, which she always does, you know? And, uh, and, and within a minute I'll have her laughing, you know, it's just how I, it's just how I learned how to cope with it. And then with my dad, I learned how to connect with him at a different kind of level where, you know, I actually became kind of his dad in a lot of ways. Cause I remember being around 14 or 15 years old and he was saying, this is how this family is going to do it. And I'm like 15 years old and I go, no, it's freaking not. Yeah. No, we're not doing this. We're doing this. You were doing this my way. So I grew up very quickly. And it was one of those reasons why um, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I kind of overdrive, I call it overdriving my vision. You know, I think I can become a doctor, even though my high school grades, if you saw my high school grades, they were dismal. I mean, I remember one of my teachers came into to the emergency room when I was working Emerge 
And um, I had, I was like a solid C minus student in high school. And he was my high school uh, homeroom teacher and my, uh, my history teacher and Mr. Colvin and Mr. Colvin came in and he was sick. He had, he was, he was, uh, had a bladder infection and uh, I was his attending position. And I came in and I said, hi, you know, uh, I'm your attendant. And he recognized me and he goes, and he looked at me with the strangest look like rusty. It's like, yep. He says, you're a doctor. And I said, yep. Because all he knew of me was this kind of, you know, slacker, um, not very bright, uh, kind of took shortcuts to get out of everything. Um, so it just shocked him to see that, that, that I was this kid who, who, you know, finally kind of made something of himself. But like I said, most of my life, I have kind of hyper challenged myself to see that if I could do it, but in hyper challenging myself, being a sensitive person, of course, I put myself through a tremendous amount of anxiety and getting back to what I said earlier, I think because my life, my early life was chaos. I felt secure in that strangely i felt secure in that environment because i knew it you know it's like that t-shirt that says you know i'm in my own little world but it's okay they know me here right so it is one of those things that that i i just sort of i've always kind of bitten off more than i could chew and then i could prove to myself that i could do it but that's not a way that's not a way of living a happy life right so i've just learned and you know recently since i've written the book and that kind of thing like like, it's just like, can you enjoy the moment, you know, as much as it sounds, can you enjoy the taste of your food? It's not like I was going a mile a minute all the time, but it was just my framework on life was, uh, was like victim. I was a victim, you know, so, and victims just don't heal. So mm -hmm. I could talk for, for hours about this, Jay. So, so please feel free to redirect me. No, you're totally fine. My friend, I like it when my guests sort of talk more than I do. It's, that's why it's basically your show, man. Like you, you take it away and I just try and help navigate. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess. So I guess it's just like trauma. Like it was like it, my, my life has mostly been a trauma reaction. And, and that's sad when I look back at that and I think, geez, you know, um, it's sad that I've lived my life in this kind of hyper sympathetic activated state and not really enjoyed things. Um, I mean, I've had peak experiences for sure. But as far as really enjoying things and staying in the moment, I haven't been very good at that. Now, in, in recent, I would, I'm going to say months, not years, you know, I've developed more of a, a morning ritual and more meditation. And as the book does better and as I get more, you know, great podcasts like yours, I feel like I can let the ball drop a little bit and just sort of let things go the way it's, the way it's going to. But yeah, you know, looking back on my life, you know, if I had to say, did you live a happy life? I would probably say no. Mm. You know, I'd probably say, no, I didn't. I didn't live a happy life. I lived, I lived a directed life. I lived a life of accomplishment. Um, but I wouldn't say there was a lot of happiness in there. Yeah, much very similar to my upbringing, even though I was sort of, I wasn't naive, but I just chose to avoid all the craziness. I was like a curious kid and I noticed things a lot more than what other kids did. So noticing the struggle and me being the young kid that I was, I didn't want my parents to struggle. So I would go without certain things. I wouldn't ask for certain things. 
because of that fact. I didn't want them to have to say no or put more pressure on themselves just to provide. So, and that was more as well, like as a, as a teenager, for example, we didn't have money to buy basketball shoes. So my mom said to me, look, you can get basketball shoes if you work hard and you save all your money. And so that was the, that was the way. But for, for me, like I saw other kids that turn up with their basketball shoes, brand spanking new, and I didn't have them. So I was kind of like, um, am, are we poor or what's going on here? Like my parents don't have the money to afford that, but that internally made me want to work as hard as I possibly could to make my parents proud. So therefore one day we didn't have to struggle financially. So one day yeah. they could relax a little bit. So that ha all trying to figure out whether or not it was a happy upbringing. Sure. There were moments of happiness, but was it completely a happy upbringing? I don't know. Like yeah. not, from, not from memory, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I think that hypervigilance, you know, shows up and a lot of successful people, you know, look at Tony Robbins, like his, his mother used to abuse him, right? Like, I think we can sublimate that negative energy, which is what I've done, you know, and I think one of the things that I used to do in, in when I was a medical doctor was, and, and I was really suffering, I was going, well, one day I'm going to write a book and make, make all this mean something, make all this pain, this anxiety, because I live with anxiety virtually every day. I just learned to like acclimatize to it more or less. Um, but it really did, you know, steal the quality from my life for sure. Um, I've heard you say before, you know, it makes you the person that you are today, but, you know, it's, you know, if someone said you could live a, like a happy life without anxiety, I would have to really think about that. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sublimate all those years of suffering into, into lessons that I can help other people with. And that's what I'm really passionate about. I mean, that's, that's why I do my room on Clubhouse every Sunday at noon Pacific time. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I post on Instagram every day. I want to give people access to theories and ways of healing their anxiety that are non-traditional because I feel like the traditional ways, the medications, the talk therapies, the CBTs, the ACTs, the LMNOPs, whatever you want to call them. I, I think that they help, but I don't think they're going to heal you because to heal, you have to really get at the alarm, that old alarm. And if I tracked with you, Jay, like if, if, if you and I were working together, I would go into your body about that feeling about the basketball shoes. The other kids have them and I don't, you know, where do you feel that in your body? Like where, like just superficially right now, when I talk about that, like just feeling about not having those basketball shoes, knowing that your family didn't have the, the means to get it. Like, where do you feel that in your body? I felt it straight away in my heart. Yeah. It's like this massive stab to the heart. Like, ouch, I don't have that, you know? Yeah. Then so maybe, maybe put your hand over that area right now. Like this yeah. is kind of what, this is a, a very abbreviated version of, of what I do. And then put your other hand on top of your first hand. And it's almost like an electrical circuit that you make with that child in you that's still, he doesn't, the child in you doesn't know that you've got this successful podcast that you've write, wrote this book. He doesn't know that. Right. So this is a chance when you connect with this child, which I believe is in your heart. When you connect with this child, you can kind of talk to him. Like when you go on your walks in nature, it's like, look what we've accomplished because he doesn't know he's still stuck there um, waiting for his basketball shoes. 
right? And wondering, you know, not wanting to impinge on his parents, you know, so it's really important. So this is, you know, Daniel Siegel talks about this, this process of integration, where we take these disparate parts of us, these parts that are filled with pain, and we, we line them up into a functional whole. We connect them into a functional whole. And if we look at the neuroscience of that, you know, the hippocampus, basically the hippocampus is this tremendously integrative structure that we have in our brains that kind of time date stamps our memories. Whereas the amygdala doesn't have any sense of time. So whenever we're reminded of that, like on some level reminded of the shoes, your amygdala will light up. It'll take you back to that age when you were younger and you will feel that in your body. But your hippocampus, if I bring you up to it now, if I bring you into present day now, your hippocampus comes online so that when you think about that shoes again, the next time you think about them, they won't fire you back into the past so much anymore because you've got an anchor in the present. Now, I'm like I said, I'm really shortening this down quite a bit, but, you know, because a lot of the stuff that I talk about is fairly ethereal, you know, like your alarm is your inner child. And like, so what I have to do to maintain my credibility is talk about, you know, the mesolimbic dopamine pathways and the amygdala and the hippocampus and integration and all that kind of stuff, because I like to mix the science with kind of like the ethereal spirit of healing from emotional wounding. That's really what I do. And that's really what I talk about in the book. And that's my passion. I've heard people speak more recently about healing the inner child. And one of the strategies I heard Lewis Howes mention a number of times now is he has a photo of himself on his phone like as, as his screensaver as that young child. And it's kind of like a reminder for him of going back to that inner child and doing the work and, and whether or not he's really healed that younger version of himself. And then yeah. they're also talking about healing yourself at different ages because definitely something happened at those different ages. So once you've healed from or you've better managed that, say, five-year-old, yeah. that six-year-old, then you move to the seven-year-old and the eight-year-old and you start slowly progressing until you get to the age you are now. So you have that complete sense of doesn't matter what happened to me at that age or even in the past, I can wholly with my hands over my hearts now, over my heart now say that I have healed from that trauma and I can now move forward from it. So absolutely. And I've been saying that for years, actually, with, I've been doing that with my patients for years, get a picture of yourself. If you can, if you're, if your trauma was specific, you know, some people can point to, I was nine years old. I was riding my bike. I came around the corner. I saw the real estate sign. I knew my parents were getting divorced basically as soon as I saw that sign. So I can work with that. And, and I said, can you get a picture of yourself when you're nine years old? And they say, yeah. Okay. Put it up behind your bathroom mirror so you can see it. And then what I want you to do every day is talk to that child, make eye contact, talk to them, explain to them where you are now, tell them that they're not where they are. They're not, you know, on their bike watching that real estate sign anymore. And then go look at yourself directly, your present day self directly in the mirror. Because I believe when you look at yourself in the mirror like that, this is hard. This is really hard because it goes right into the emotional parts of our brain. And then you reassure yourself that I'm here now. This is what I've done. I'm, I'm present now. I'm happy with myself now. Then you go back to that child's picture 
and you say, look, this is where we are now. So what this does, and again, I'm kind of shortening this a bit, but what this does is it shows our unconscious mind that we're not locked back there. We're not stuck back there as that nine-year-old, you know, waiting to hear about their parents' divorce. We are actually showing in real time, we go back, we make eye contact with that child. We make eye contact with our present day self in the mirror, which is really, really powerful and really hard to do because your ego does not want you to do this. <laughs> and you go back and forth and you do that every day. And after a while, you feel this connection with that child who was traumatized because that's all that child wants is to be seen, heard and loved. That's really all they want. And you have the ability to give that to you. But the one thing about that is, we often as adults don't want to go back and visit that child because that child holds a lot of our pain. And that child, by the same token, doesn't really trust us because we've left as an adult, we've left that child in pain for a long, long time. So it does take a while. And that's why I think this mirror thing is so good. It does take a while for that child to trust you and for you to trust yourself enough to go back into that old pain. And often we need a guide. We need someone else that can kind of help us see it through because it's pretty intense, but it is a great way of starting to make connections with that child. And I don't, I don't like the term inner child so much. I'm okay with it. But I notice that if I, if I talk to doctors or whatever, I'll never, ever use the term inner child because it just turns them off. They start thinking too woo, whatever. I'll often use younger self. And you're exactly right. You can, you can do what they call timeline therapy and go back. But usually what I'll do is I'll gain people's trust. We'll go at one of the big traumas of their life. And once we knock down the big trauma and we connect with that big trauma, the other ones kind of fall pretty quickly. Mm. I, yeah, I was speaking with Mel Robbins not long ago and she has the high five habit and yep. five second rule. Uh, and as we were talking, we did sort of like the placing the hands over the hearts. And then we said, a, I think it was a mantra, which does help like the, the energy side. It does. Yeah. And if you, and if you, if you match that, if you actually, I read both of the, I love Mel Robbins and I love her books. And if you match that up by watching yourself in the mirror at the same time, it makes a huge difference. And I think that's what the high five habit is a, a lot about too, is you're making eye contact, you're making high five on the mirror. So it's really about accessing your brain in a way your brain isn't able to resist. Because when you're looking, because 70% of your brain is devoted to your visual system. So if you're looking right at yourself, it's very difficult to ignore that sense of connection, that sense of feeling. And you can learn from that too. But as I say, I, I use, I do mirror work with a lot of my patients and it is really, really hard. It's really hard because when you look at yourself in the mirror like that with compassion and love, you will take yourself back to a younger self and often tears will come. And then because it's so painful, your ego doesn't want you to do it ever again. So you'll think, oh, maybe I should do some mirror work today. It's like, no, I'll go have a shower. I'll go do the laundry. I'll do something else. Because your ego is a very slippery little thing and it doesn't want you to change. It wants to stay in that sort of old chaotic environment that it's familiar with because the ego is, a, is it's kind of a big, it's kind of a big dumb dragon. And I write about that in the book is it's very powerful, but it's not very smart. All it, all the dragon does is it says that hurt me when I was a child. I am never, ever doing that again. Yeah. What's that old saying? Misery loves comfort. Yeah. Something. 
Yeah. Well, there's Misery of... Loves Company, which is basically oh, my Scottish family, because they're always talking about my mother can find misery. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so worried about the ants in Bangladesh. I watched this documentary and the ants were being, you know, it's like, oh, mom, you know, like, just take it easy. Like any sort of misery. That's what I always say about the Kennedys. It's like the Kennedys love misery. Oh my God. Because I think, you know, I think when we're feeling anxious and down and afraid, we do look for something that's very consistent in our external environment that matches that feeling. So I think, I think that's where misery loves company comes from. Yeah. And for a lot of people as well, being in that state of misery is sort of like easier and it's, it's familiar. Somewhat, it's familiar. It's more comfortable yeah. to be in that state of misery for some reason, even though it's actually well, I'll tell you. more than actually getting up and doing the hard work to, to heal yourself. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why that is, is because human beings equate familiarity with security. So, and it's like Conrad Lorenz and the, and the ducks, you know, like when he does the, that thing where the, he, the ducks imprinted on him and he walks around and there's all these pictures of him imprint that with these ducks imprinted on him. Now trauma does the same thing to us. It imprints on us. So when we, when we have these imprints in us, there is this compulsion to reproduce those imprints because we believe, you know, like the ducks being our mother, we believe that there is some sort of ethereal source energy that's going to protect us. But it's really a fault in our wiring is that we trust the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And if you have a lot of that, and this is why, you know, most of our brain development or 80% of our brain development occurs before age three. So if you had a lot of trauma or disattachment issues before the age of three, your brain will wire in a way that sort of uh, prevents you from really connecting to yourself. Now you can do that. My wife's a somatic trauma therapist. So she, she deals specifically with people who have had trauma before the age of seven. Right. And she uses a lot of touch work and a lot of somatic work and that kind of stuff. And we talk all the time about, you know, different patients that we have and how, how we heal different things based on, because some people don't have a story. You know, like if you're three years old and you were abused by your dad, um, you won't have a story, like a cognitive story of that, because your your neocortex hasn't developed enough for you to develop enough language to be able to have a story. So the only thing you have to heal is feeling. But because feeling is probably the most powerful way of healing, which we haven't realized in our society yet, but it, it is, um, you're in a good group because as long as you start addressing that feeling and that making that connection to yourself, even if it's just sort of a touch on your shoulder or a touch on your chest or whatever, like when you're upset, you know, put your hand on your heart, put your hand on your chest, breathe into that, really feel that connection with yourself. Because really when you're upset, it's just the child in you that's afraid to go back to that same old trauma. So if you show that child that you're actually your, your adult self is actually there for them, you can reroute a lot of that, redirect a lot of that old pain. Are there, so I want to give my audience some strategies. We've mentioned sure. quite a few of them, but what are some two to three other strategies that you can give that revolve around healing? Yeah. One of the things that I think is really easy to do and, and really underrated is backbends, you know, yogic backbends. And you don't have to, you know, 
be a Cirque du Soleil performer or anything like that. But it's like the way I describe it to people is put your feet flat on the floor, about shoulder width apart, put your, your hands in your back pockets. Like you're putting your hands in your back pockets of your jeans, try and pull your elbows together and then look back and arch your back, arch your spine backwards and just go to the point and just keep balance on both feet and just go to the point where you start feeling a little bit of tension there. And then you'll notice if you breathe, you know, if you take a nice deep breath in, you may be able to go back a little bit further. Yeah. And back, bend, back, like back bends are one of the things that provide an instant rush. They, they, they actually, it's almost like an, it's almost like a reset. Feels good. And, and, and I find, cause a lot of people say, oh, you know, do a forward fold, you know, or uh, take a deep breath, which, which are all great. But I find that back bends are very, very, and they're very quick. You know, now if you have back issues, you know, Dr. Kennedy says, don't do this if you have back issues, but here's the other, here's another thing that we can use. And Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about this a lot is the physiological sigh, which is two quick breaths in through your nose. And then one slow breath out through your mouth. Right. Now I find that anxious people um, don't take full deep breaths. So I get them to do three breaths in three and, and make the third breath really deep so that you're almost feeling like your shoulders are widening at the same time. Like they're separating from each other because you're really expanding that rib cage. So it's, and then hold it for about five seconds and then breathe out through pursed lips slowly. And as you breathe out, just imagine the air coming out of a tire, deflating out of a tire and relax your jaw, relax your shoulders. Just let your back relax. And if you want to supercharge this, put your feet flat on the floor so you can feel the, the grounding of the earth at the same time. So the way I do it is exactly like this. So I'll go really expanding that chest, holding it for about five seconds. And then often I'll chant when I, when I release the breath. So I'll go, Oh, and what that does is that I'm, I'm put, I'm going to put myself in a bit of a trance here. If I do too many of these, what that does is it actually hits the recurrent laryngeal branch of the, of the vagus nerve, right? The vagus nerve is the biggest parasympathetic or rest and digest nerve in your body. So if you can uh, chant or sing, or even, even just vocalize something, Peter Levine, the, the creator of somatic experiencing therapy uses this sound called VU, V-O-O. And it's like VU, There is something about chanting through that vagus nerve, through those, the recurrent laryngeal nerve and through just your chest and just that vibration will automatically start to relax you. And once you do about five rounds of that, you gain your prefrontal cortex function back. Because when you're in survival mode and you start firing out cortisol and epinephrine, adrenaline, the prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain goes offline. And this is one of my issues with, with cognitive therapy is that when you get upset, you need the cognitive part of your brain to start using cognitive therapy. But the catch 22 is 
when you're upset in survival mode, you've lost the cognitive part of your brain, right? You've sunk back into the emotional part of your brain. So you, so cognitive therapies can, if you don't practice them enough, leave you at the very time that you need them the absolute most. So that's why, that's why I always, I always sort of say, there's one thought that I allow people to have when they're anxious and it's this, am I safe in this moment? Mm. So this works in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, but just say to yourself, when you're freaking out about something, I know this is bad. I know this situation with my pet is bad, or I'm getting a ta huge tax bill, or I might get fired or whatever, but am I safe in this moment? And this is what saved my ass in the middle of the night, more times than I can count. You wake up panicked. All your sort of um, defensive strategies are down because you're wake, woken up in the middle of the night. And the only thing that I can say to myself is, yeah, I'm completely freaked out right now. I'm completely panicked, but I'm actually safe in this moment that I'm in. I put my hand on my chest, that kind of thing. I'm safe in this moment. And you can use this. And, and my daughter say, this, is, this has been the biggest a single tip that my daughter says has helped her the most is just saying, look, when you're panicked and you're freaked out about something that's going to happen five minutes, five months, or five years from now, go to, am I safe in this moment? And really start looking around, put your hand on your chest and really focusing on the fact that yes, in this moment, you are safe. Because what happens is when we get stressed, we either get fired back into our past through the amygdala, or we get fired into our projected future of worry. So if the more you can bring yourself into sensation of the present moment, the more calm you can actually create in your system. And the more calm you create in your system, you get your thinking brain back online, and then you can actually look at the worries critically. But I, I tell people all the time, don't try to solve your worries when you're in alarm already, because your brain is not able to process them. So why are, you, why are you trying to solve an algebra problem when someone's got a knife to your throat? You just can't do it. So it's like, am I safe in this moment? The physiological sigh using three breaths in through your nose as opposed to one. And then backbends. Those are the things that I find at the staple of, of really being able to start connecting with your body and developing a relationship with your body. And when you can develop a relationship with your body, you can start developing a relationship with that child in you that's, that, that's scared, that's still scared. Mm. I think those strategies are brilliant. I love the backbends. And backbends are amazing. And they're they're so underrated. I just don't know why they're so underrated because they work so well. Even though my back sucks, but <laughs> I've got a weakness in my back. Okay. Uh, which came from bullying, which is another story entirely. Okay. But I, yeah. I can still do the backbends. Yeah. Uh, over the years, I've strengthened it as much as I possibly can. Yeah. So, I just felt that release and the chanting side of things, like you're going to put me to sleep. I know. <laughs> just by That's what happens to, it, to me. Like, oh, but it's fantastic, man. Uh, Dr. Dr. Kennedy, I do want to be respectful of your time. I know I've taken up quite a bit of it already today. No, I love talking with you. I, I love talking with you as well, man. Definitely going to have to have you back on for more conversation. I think it's going to be, it's going to be great. So I think there's going to be so many more conversations yet, yet to come. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anxiety is such a huge topic too. Like there's just, I mean, in an, in an hour, it's very hard for us to, to cover much of it, but I think we touched on it pretty well here. I think we did, man. I think for a 
first conversation. I think we did a good job. Yeah, so thank you so, so much too. for for sharing what you did share. I'll ask you my final question, which sure. you've listened to the end of my conversations. You know what's coming. So maybe you've had time to prepare more than most. <laughs> so, I haven't actually, but oh, keep going. here we go. Um, all right. So this is my hypothetical question. It's, okay. uh, imagine for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100, all your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I'd like some images of my dad and I, because I don't remember a lot of my childhood. So I would like that. I'd like uh, some images of, um, getting through medical school because that was hell. And it was probably the biggest, the biggest Mount Everest in my life was getting through medical school. Uh, Having my daughter, having Leandra has been just the most incredible experience of my life because I always mistrusted love. And she was the first person that I actually fully and completely and unconditionally loved. So I would love to have her, uh, in that little movie, uh, I would love to, to watch my evolution, uh, from a medical doctor into an anxiety specialist and help people from all over the world. I would love to see that. Uh, and I would love to see, you know, just becoming really content with, with what I have. I mean, I think you and I are similar in this way and that, that we strive to really connect people and there's always more to do, but I think it's just realizing that we're doing it. Like we we're really doing it. And I think it's, you know, just, and we, I don't need thanks for it. And I, I don't think that you do either. I think this is, this comes from a passion that we both have is just really wanting to, to help other people uh, not have to suffer like we did. And that would be the epitaph, you know, Dr. Kennedy, uh, had a, had a life that made sure that people didn't have to suffer so much. Mm. Dr. Kennedy, thank you so much for your time today, man, for just being a, a great individual that strives to help so many, so many people out there. You've helped me today enormously. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and cannot wait for the next one. Go and check out his book, Anxiety RX. I'll make sure everyone knows where to get that. They can connect with you at your website. I believe it's Dr. Kennedy or Dr. Russell Kennedy. It's uh, yeah. All my, all my stuff is the anxiety MD, like uh, my Instagram, my YouTube, it's just the anxiety MD. And you can call me Russ, Jay. Awesome. Well, I like you have to call me doctor the whole time. It's a, a, even cooler. Sure. <laughs> it makes me feel more, more official, man. Oh, like of course. Dr. Kennedy. But uh, thank you so much, my friend, for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thanks, Shay. I really appreciate talking with you. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the Storybox on all podcast platforms 
It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.